Over these past uh, few weeks, I have received uh, numerous uh, emails and um, letters from those who are in lands facing great persecution. I received this email from one missionary statesman in India, uh, Bobby Gupta, whom we have had here. He writes, I write this letter with an urgency to request all of you to please pray for our church planters in the state of Orissa. One of our church planters from Orissa called us yesterday morning to share with us that seven of our churches were ransacked and burned in two districts. The church planters in these districts were threatened for life and forced to leave their villages. The church services were not allowed to take place and the believers were prevented from attending the worship service. There's a lot of violence and riots are taking place. Another email arrived from him just a few days ago. Dear friends, I write this with mixed feelings of joy and heavy heart. The reason for our joy is to know that 157,000 people now have responded to the gospel and 396 new churches planted in 2007. Imagine this in the land of India. Praise God for that. He said, but my heart is heavy because of the pain, the beatings, the threats that our church planters go through. We thank God for the hope in Christ. And we join with the Apostle Paul in saying, we are persecuted, but we never have to stand it alone. We may be knocked down, but we are never knocked out. Every day we experience something of the death of the Lord Jesus so that we may also know the power of the life of Jesus. I was copied by our friend and fellow pastor to the Pocot in Kenya, specifically in Kapanguria. Chimam reports of the growing violence and his own escape from a couple of things that could have taken his life, a couple of incidences that could have taken his life, the destruction of churches by anti-Christian movements, the bloodshed, he writes, is escalating. One of our partners, Pastor Inez in Kenya, along with Build the Village, with Damon Davenport, one of our own missionaries. In fact, one of their missionaries, uh, Built, has just in this past two weeks been burned to the ground And they are engaged in great, great sorrow and suffering of the believers. One of our missionaries, on the other hand, to regions in the Middle East, uh, has sent a couple of emails. I was copied on them, revealing the ending of peace for the Algerian church, where the persecution at the hands of anti-Christians is now beginning to increase. The Algerian government and media is now pressuring Christianity to stop evangelizing, and some laws have been recommended making conversion to Christ criminal. Authorities are looking for any possible excuse to close these churches that preach the gospel, and their leaders are headed for prison. Travel on to Nigeria, where I read new releases which reveal the murder of one gentleman who served as a youth pastor at Gaza Baptist Church, shot and stabbed numerous times. He is survived by his expecting wife and two small children. And then I learned the news that Vladimir Putin, the Russian leader, has given orders that were effective January 1, 2008, that Russia broadcast organization was to remove all Christian programs from two major uh, networks in Mayak and Yunost where Transworld Radio is uh, broadcast. These networks include 700 local stations. If you can imagine shutting down the gospel now that was emanating from 700 stations, no longer able to broadcast inside of Russia. You can almost hear those massive creaking doors of communism closing shut again on all evangelical influence. And I could literally go on and on and on and on with the suffering of believers around the world. 
Listen to this. According to the International Bulletin of Missionary Research that just came published in World Magazine dated February 9th, 2008, they are estimating that 480 Christians are being martyred somewhere in the world for Christ every single day. That means before I end this sermon, 20 more will be ushered into the presence of their Lord. They refused to recant of faith in following Him. But this was the promise of Christ, was it not? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, where He said, Just as the world hates me, so the world will hate you. Behind the scenes, of course, it is Satan, the ultimate anti-Christian, who hates the bride, who hates the church and the propagation of the gospel. He knows, and this is just a little side note, but it struck me as I studied this week, he knows that we will one day occupy the throne that he lost in his covetous, arrogant attempt to win. We will co-reign with Christ over the universe, and Satan longs for that glory. And when we rise, literally enthroned in heavenly places with Christ, Satan will merely experience one more downward plunge. He was first hurled from heaven to earth, Isaiah 14. He will, in the future, be cast from earth into the abyss for a thousand years, according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 3, and after a brief release, he will be hurled into the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. He knows of this. He knows of his never-ending downward plunge, and he knows of the believer's rise to never-ending glory, and he, for that and a million reasons more, hates you, and he hates the church. And he hates our Christ. So for 21 centuries now, the church has been attacked and he has schemed and plotted, murdered, belittled, slandered, attacked, frustrated, and even tortured the church. If the Christian will enter his glory and rest, as far as Satan is concerned, the Christian will enter it having suffered as greatly as he can possibly suffer. But Satan only ends up hurting himself, doesn't he? For persecution does not stamp out the church, it spreads it. Suffering does not paralyze the church, it purifies it. It it promotes the church. It, it, It propagates the gospel of the church to a world that wonders how believers can stand true and firm even in the face of suffering. Tertullian, a church father living during the days of of Romans uh, persecution said this, the blood of the martyrs is the what? The seed of the church. The great quote of his that has lasted to this day. In other words, you spill the blood of a Christian and from the spot where it hits the ground, it seems it only seeds more believers. They just sprout up. The churches just spring up. It is true today in places like Algeria and Orissa, India and Russia, and Africa. It was certainly true in the first century. For if you crush the life of a believer, from that crushing emanates this fragrance that simply draws more people to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Out of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, who received a special letter from Christ, only two of them heard not one word of criticism. The next church we're about to study was one of those two, and not surprisingly, it was a church 
that was suffering. Let's open the letter together at Revelation chapter 2. It begins in verse 8. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, in this letter, our Lord commends this church in four areas. He says, first of all, I know all about you. I know that you bear up under great pressure. Verse 9, your text might read, I know your tribulation. The word is thlipsis, which means pressure or trouble. Certainly, you could render it tribulation. It's a Greek word that was used in those days of persecution for a man being tortured to death by having a, a large boulder dropped upon him to crush him to death. So Jesus Christ is saying to them, and they would have readily gotten the picture from the Greek words, I know the crushing pressures in your life. I know what the boulders are that are laid upon your body, your mind, your heart. Now, what would it have been in Smyrna that would have produced such great pressure? Without a doubt, there are at least a couple of reasons. One, uh, you've, you've read it, the hatred they endured by the Jews who weren't true followers of faithful Abraham. We'll look at that later on. But secondly, let me mention the predominance of Caesar worship because this would be outside the text. We take you back to the days of the Roman Empire, which had brought, by the way, great peace to its citizens the Pax Romana had, had allowed them to live secure lives. A person could conduct his business. He could provide for his family. He could travel. And thanks to the strong hand of Rome, he could send his letters out and expect them to be delivered. He could take his journeys in security. The seas had been cleared of pirates. The paved roads of Rome had been cleared of thieves and brigands. And people no longer needed to, to live in fear of barbarism. So it was, it was not a stretch that the patriotism and loyalty to Rome would, would, would sort of become in this uh, pagan idolatrous world sort of a form of worship. And out of that was born uh, the worship of Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome. Now at first, worship of her was voluntary. It wasn't mandatory. It was rather spontaneous. But over time, there rose the belief that there was indeed a person who embodied the spirit of Dea Roma, and it was the emperor himself. First, worship to him was simply accepted as the incarnation of, of the spirit of Rome, but later it would become official, and he would later be viewed as the incarnation of deity. Isn't that amazing? How like the gospel does the enemy of the church move mankind to create their false religions? Now, to make matters worse, toward the end of the first century, Domitian made Caesar worship mandatory. And this was the ruler that exiled John to the island of Patmos. 
Once a year, the Romans were expected to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar. If there was a temple of Tadea Roma nearby, they would go there, but just about any temple would suffice. They were to burn that pinch and, and offer not so much an act of religion, but an act of loyalty, an act of good citizenship. You were just a good citizen if you offered this pinch. You, you didn't have to worship this particular god. You could go back and worship whomever you wished, but just be a good citizen and offer this pinch of incense to Caesar and and then get on with your, your life. You can see the problem, can't you? Any idolater had no problem offering a pinch of incense to Caesar and calling him Lord. He's just one more God, big deal. But a Christian couldn't do this. They couldn't compromise for 30 seconds. They, they could give no man the name of a Lord. And so without this certificate, persecution, imprisonment, suffering was liable to break out at any, any moment. Now that was sort of the general scene in the empire, but it only got worse for the believers living in Smyrna because Smyrna happened to be totally dedicated to Caesar worship. Yes, they had other gods. They had their temple to Zeus, but they were the first city in the world to build a temple to Dea Roma and have priests to take their incense. In fact, in A.D. 26, about 70 years, 65 years or so before this letter would be written, Smyrna competed with six other prominent cities in Asia Minor to to get the right to, to win the bid to build the temple honoring the godhead of Tiberius, the reigning emperor. Kind of like all of the countries of our world compete to have the Olympics take place on their soil. So Smyrna was involved in in this massive uh, competition to beat out these other cities, and Smyrna won. For a person to enter the faith, to enter the church of Smyrna, was to lay your life down. They never knew when the boulder would drop and crush them. So they lived and they worked with the prospect of this crushing, torturous death at any moment. And I found it fascinating and not coincidental to discover that the Greek word Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh, that fragrant spice that is formed by the crushing of the flowering myrrh tree or thorn bush. It produced a sticky resin that they could use to, to collect and then make into perfume. It was also used significantly in the days of Christ to prepare the dead for burial. You remember when Jesus Christ was visited by the Magi, he was given those three symbolic uh, gifts, gold representing his royalty, frankincense, which was used by the the priests in the Old Testament in their intercessory work, and, and myrrh, an odd gift, but prophetic. It would be this sweet perfume that they would use to embalm him, literally wrap into the folds of the linen that they wrapped around his body as he died for the sin of the world. And so Jesus Christ says to the saints living in the city of myrrh, that which produces perfume by the crushing, he says, I know that you are being crushed, and from that crushing will come sweet fragrance that will draw others to me. I think it's wonderful that he begins his letter 
his comments to them in verse 9 with the words again, I know. You ought to circle those words in your text. How encouraging. Jesus says first and foremost to them, listen, I know. I know what it's like to have tribulation. I know what it's like to have a death sentence over your head. I know the pressure. I know despair. I sweat great drops of blood over mine. I know. Isn't it encouraging for someone to call you up when you're facing some dark hour? Maybe take you by the hand. Maybe write a note to you and say, listen, I know. I know. I understand. Better yet, I've been through the exact same thing you're going through. I really understand. I've had that illness. I know exactly what the doctors are going to do next. I know what it's like to lose a relationship because of personal conviction. I know what it's like to be passed over in the workplace because of integrity and honesty. I know what it's like to bury a child. We've already got our family plot nearby. I know what it's like to be abandoned by family. I know what it's like to be alone. Listen to Jesus Christ say to them and to you, I know, I know the burden on your heart and spirit. You may not have a boulder lowered down upon you. You may not have problems with Caesar worship in your culture, uh, but you've got a rock in the pit of your stomach, a heaviness in the middle of your chest. I happen to know all about it. I know. How incredibly encouraging to a suffering believer just to know that Jesus knows, right? Just to know that he knows. How like our children, when they're hurt, they run to mommy. They want to be held. But more than that, they want to know that mommy knows and that mommy cares, right? I don't know about your kids, but when my kids were hurt, they ran to mom. When they're broke, they run to dad. They want me to know that. Even over this past Christmas break, our three college kids were home, which is translated broke. <laughs> our daughter ended up with stomach flu, lasted all night, and, and about three o'clock in the morning, she came into our bedroom and, and let us know. I didn't need to know, actually. Um, <laughs> I was fine not knowing, but Marcia cared. Jesus Christ says to these suffering saints, I... I happen to know you are experiencing great pressure. Secondly, he assures them that he knows they are enduring deep poverty. He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your, your poverty. This is a word that refers to someone who has absolutely nothing. Nothing. Not that they don't have bread to stick in the oven. They don't have an oven. They don't have a home to have an oven. More than likely, this was owing to the fact that their jobs and homes and livelihood would be taken away, many of them probably experiencing what the Jews experienced in Nazi Europe. Their homes could be vandalized in broad daylight and nobody would do anything about it. Their shops were broken into and all their goods would be stolen and no one would care and they were left destitute and poverty stricken. He says here, I know your poverty. That's the word, tokea. I know you have nothing, but... You are rich. <laughs> what an odd. What is he, an optimist? Does he just drop that in there because he's turning a blind eye to their poverty? Now, let me explain it this way. 
Suppose, or just imagine, you are a poor person. Some of you are thinking that does not require an imagination. Okay? Well, just imagine you are very, very poor. You have nothing in your bank account. You don't have any money for gas, food for lunch today, utilities. The bank is going to foreclose on Monday on your home. Now I want you to imagine that I'm a millionaire. That will require imagination. Okay? And I come up to you and I say, listen, Susan, Fred, John, Bill, Cindy, uh, as you know, I'm very wealthy. And uh, I have been doing some research on my family tree, and you will never believe it. You'll never believe it. Your great-great-uncle was my great-great-great-great-grandfather's nephew, I think. And I have discovered that, and that means that we are some kind of way distant, removed cousins. And you're thinking, big deal. But then I say, and I want you to know that, that I had made a commitment to my family. They all know it. Nobody else knows it. But I give to every one of my family members $1 million. And, and I've got a check. And I've already written out. And it's got your name on it. And I've signed it. And, 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 and here it is. And I hand it to you. What are you going to do next? <laughs> you got to cash it. That's right. Yeah, he's really alert over there, man. Absolutely. Now, if, if you're headed there to cash it, and I, and I beat you to the bank, and I'm standing there waiting at the door, and I ask you, hey, are you poor or rich? You're going to say, I'm rich. Wait a second, you haven't even deposited the money in the bank. Have you? No. But you're rich. You've got that check in, in your hand. In fact, on the way to the bank, you've called your wife, you've called your, your parents, you've called your, your former boss that you no longer work for, and you've said, oh, listen, I'm rich. And your family has said, wonderful. Your boss said, great. You are rich. Why? All you have is a piece of paper in your hand. But you know that that signature is good and that that piece of paper is supported by the wealth of your donor, and you're related to them, and every family member gets $1 million. Listen, even as you drive your bucket of bolts to the bank and you walk in in your threadbare clothing and your stomach's rumbling because you haven't had anything to eat, you are, present tense, rich. So, friends, this is what he means to them and us. We have a check effectively written with our name on it, and the riches of heaven are ours. We might be poor on our way to the bank. At the same time, we have all the riches of God in Christ Jesus, His inheritance, His righteousness, His kingdom, His throne, His new heaven, His new earth, all promised to those of us. Why? Because we just happen to be in His family. We're related to Him. So the writer of Hebrews says this of believers who, who, who got it, he said, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How do you joyfully accept the plundering of your property? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an everlasting one. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. It isn't going to be long before we all arrive, so to speak, at the bank and on the way there, if somebody asks you, are you rich 
or poor. In Christ, you can say with great confidence, present tense, I'm rich. Jesus Christ says, I know what you're suffering, though, as you make your way home. I know you are also suffering unfair provocation. He says further, I know about your tribulation and your poverty, though you're rich. And I also know this. I know, I know the slander you're facing. I know those things they're saying about you. Those who say they're Jews, but they really don't follow after Abraham as the man of faith in the coming one. They're just a synagogue of Satan. They represent the will and the work and the plans and the schemes of the enemy of the church. They're not the synagogue of God. I know about their unfair provocations. You see, the Christians here were enduring a smear campaign. It would last for centuries. It didn't said so much now anywhere in the world, but these particular ones were, were running around the empire Historical records tell us that these slanderous accusations were, first of all, that the Christians refused to to worship the gods and visit the temple, so they were therefore atheists. So they were criticized or slandered as atheists. Another more severe provocation was that since Christians celebrated communion and talked about this partaking of flesh and blood, that they were cannibals that they were eating one another. They were killing young and some sort of ritualistic slaying, and and they were eating flesh and drinking their blood. And so you can imagine the horror that would come to the mind of the one who heard this slander. Those people are cannibals. Christians were also slandered because they, they, they spoke of loving one another. They spoke about being members of one another. And so thus the accusation was developed that Christians actually engaged in sexual orgies within their communities of faith. That's what they're doing when they're together. They're perverted, atheistic cannibals. All of this slander enabled much of the persecution faced by these early Christians to take root. I know what they're saying about you. And today in the 21st century in Western freedom, there are a lot of things being said about you too. And Jesus Christ says, I know all about that too. Here's the fourth area. He says, I know some of you will face a future in prison. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Notice how he he, he tracks it all the way back to the enemy, the church, the devil, primary cause, the effect would be those that would work for him, but even behind that, of course, as we know, would be our Lord's own will. So to make matters worse, you're going to have these 10 days of tribulation. Some of you are going to be separated from your families. Even though they're impoverished men, you're going to be thrown into prison, which means they're really going to have it more difficult than ever. What a crushing blow this would be to to read this letter and the Lord tell us if this were written to Colonial. By the way, many of you are going to be thrown into prison. Can you imagine getting a letter and the Lord saying that to us? Maybe He is. But for those believers around the world suffering, this letter is written to them. And they're reading this, this promise which is to this day coming true. Some would face the crushing blow of separation. 
because they refused to stop believing and propagating the gospel, like some of the pastors in Uzbekistan that I have read about who are suffering, waiting jail sentences to be delivered. Now, what does John mean when he writes, you will have tribulation for 10 days? Short answer? I don't know. But I'm not allowed to say that, so I've spent time guessing what it might mean this week. And here's my best guess. Ready? Now, some I will, I, I, I will add, because you've got your study Bibles and you're reading what they're saying. Um, some say that it's a reference to a short period of time. Could be. I think it's a reference to the 10 edicts of Roman emperors against the church. The first was Nero's in AD 54. The 10th was Diocletian in AD 284. And then, of course, the Roman Empire begins to crumble. But these 10 crushing edicts that brought untold suffering and hardship to the believers, he tells them in Smyrna they will come. In fact, they've already started. This one who will assault the church, but Christ promised the gates of hell will not what? Prevail against her. Matthew 16, 18. Now, I want you to notice three things. First of all, I want you to notice their challenge from the Lord that comes on the heels of these words. Their challenge, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to, to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful, here's the challenge, unto death. Be faithful unto death. G. Campbell Morgan, the pastor and author of a century ago, made a great point when he said that this word faithful is from, he pointed this out from the same Greek root, which means to be convinced. Be convinced unto death. This is what Jesus told his disciples in John 14. You believe in me. Keep believing in me. Now, he's not saying that you can lose your salvation. He's saying even when facing great pressure and trouble and persecution, at those times you are most likely to believe that maybe I don't care. Maybe I know and I don't care. Or maybe I don't know. Or maybe I'm not worthy of being followed. Remain convinced. Even then that I know and I care. Two years ago, the voice of persecution ministry delivered to the West an incident of childlike faith, and I copied it out and I've had it in my file now for two years. Chinese officials burst into an unofficial church meeting where they found 30 children being led by their teachers and some parents in their Sunday school. They herded the children into a van and took them away to the station. Their parents raced after them. Even though it was terribly frightening for these children, one older child in that van began to sing. Voice of Persecution recounts the story of how the other children soon began to follow. And soon the van was filled with their songs about Jesus that they had learned. Upon arriving at the police station, the children marched in rather bravely and were led back to an interrogation room, but they were still singing to the Lord, and the whole police station just sort of quieted down and listened, and here these kids come in singing praise to God. The Chinese officers attempted to force the children to write, I do not believe in Jesus. They told them that they had to write it a hundred times before they would be allowed to go home. Instead, 
the children wrote, translated for us, I believe in Jesus today. I will believe in Jesus tomorrow. I will believe in Jesus forever. The officers were completely exasperated with the courage and faith of these children. So they went out and called some of the parents back to the interrogation room and threatened them. And some of the parents denied Christ, scooped their children up and ran. Others refused. One widowed believer, they eventually would all be let go, but one widowed believer absolutely refused to deny Christ when she was brought back to pick up her twin sons. I found this interesting. The officers threatened her, saying, If you do not deny Jesus, we will not release your twin young boys to you. And she replied with a, with a touch of humor. She said, Well, then I guess you will just have to keep them, because without Jesus, I can't raise them. <laughs> with no avenues left open to them, not expecting this kind of resistance, they simply said to her and the others, Take your children and leave. The Lord here provides not only a challenge, He reminds them of their compensation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, now this isn't saying, now look, only for those that are martyrs or those who are faithful get the crown. This is all synonymous with the blessing and the compensation for those who follow Christ and believe in him. In fact, this word crown is not diadema. That is the royal crown. This is stephanos. This is, this is a wreath. You could translate it uh, literally to understand it a little better. This particular wreath was given on three occasions. It was given to a, a, an athlete who was victorious, who, who ran and won. It was also presented to a citizen of the city who faithfully served the city. And third, it was worn by participants in a wedding festival. So here, you can obviously see the analogy. Jesus Christ is saying, look, I'm going I'm to give you, because you've run the race well, this wreath. I'm going to give you for having served the city of God as a loyal citizen, this wreath. I'm going to give to you as we celebrate that wedding feast You are my bride, this festive wreath for you to wear. When you think of that compensation, our affliction is indeed light. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, when compared to the eternal weight of glory, which is beyond comparison. This is their challenge from the Lord. This is their compensation from the Lord. Notice their confidence in the Lord. He who has an ear, verse 11, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who conquers, that is to the believer, he will not be hurt by the second death. It's interesting to me that the letter begins with a reference to death, and now it ends with a reference to death. Appropriate, don't you think? Written to a body of believers who will suffer, many of them a martyr's death. He says, you will not be hurt by the second death. This is a reference to eternal separation in the lake of fire. It's not extinction of the spirit. For just as your first death does not extinguish your spirit, in fact, you are more alive than ever. So the second death does not extinguish the spirit. They are more alive than ever. 
This second death, which is a reference to those who are condemned to hell forever, will be more alive than ever. Well, how do you escape the second death? Well, obviously, the Bible is filled, the New Testament, with instruction relative to the gospel that those who place their faith in Christ alone are born again. They are born again, not of the flesh, that's the first birth, but of the Spirit, that is the second birth, John chapter 3, verse 6. If you are born physically and you are born spiritually, you will only die once. If you have never been born again by placing your trust in Christ, you will experience death eternally. So, in other words, if you have been born twice, you die once. If you have only been born once, you die twice. And the second death is everlasting. So now how do we have the confidence that we will be saved forever? Go back to the beginning of the letter. This is how he introduces himself. These are the words of the first and the last. Who died and came to life? Yes, you may be crushed, but the crushing of your lives, like the crushing of my own life, brought life again. And the sweet fragrance and aroma to our living Lord. So this one who says, I I have already followed you to death. And I have been brought back to life. And so you who die in me have confidence. I will bring you back to life in me. That's our confidence in him. This gave these believers in Smyrna the courage and the steel in their souls to face the persecution that would begin with great earnest in their own generation. In fact, Polycarp was the leader in the church at Smyrna. He was a disciple of the apostle John. He was tutored by John. And eventually, Polycarp would lead the believers in Smyrna. And the words of Christ to this church would come true in his own very life. History records it was a festival in the city, an annual festival, and the fever pitch loyalty for the empire of Rome was at its height, and they decided it was time to get old Polycarp, who was 86 years old, and let's go ahead now and make him offer incense to Caesar. We've put it off long enough. We've had patience long enough. It's time to take their leader and make an example of him. Of course, they expected him to recant. History records that he was brought into the arena, and he was told to either confess Caesar as Lord or die. Leaders were slandering him. They cried out, and I quote, this, by the way, comes from a document dated in the second century. This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of the gods, who teaches many neither to offer sacrifice nor to worship. And so Polycarp was given a decision, a choice, to sacrifice to Caesar and call him Lord or be burned to death. We have his answer recorded and protected over the centuries, translated for us, Polycarp said to the mob that hushed in the arena, and he said these words translated for us, Eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. 
How can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? I fear not the fire which burns for an hour and after a little while is extinguished. So why do you delay? Come and do your will. In a matter of moments, Polycarp was burned to death and the words of Christ came true. For from the crushing of his life, now centuries later, it offers a sweet fragrance unto Christ. And we can all partake. And this one, who like the twenty, while I have preached, enter the rest of Christ, and they are given the wreath as the bride, as the loyal citizen of heaven, as the one who faithfully served the city of God. Father, we would love for this to be our story in a way, faithful to you and to death. While we may not die a martyr's death, we can be faithful to you tomorrow. We can say with these children, we will follow Jesus today. We will believe in Jesus tomorrow. and We will live for Jesus forever. While your heads are bowed, my friend, let me ask you a question. Have you been born the second time by the Spirit of God? Have you placed your faith in Christ alone? Have you become a member of the family of God? You do not know the days that are written in your book. And you may be ending soon, the final page or two. It could be today. Be warned. This is the gospel. The second death is your lot, and it will be eternal, everlasting, separation and punishment from God. Run to Christ, the one who died for you, the one who endured the agony of the cross for you, the one who was crushed for you. Receive him right where you sit. You can pray in your heart, Lord Jesus, I do now believe you to be the only Savior and Lord of all. And I place my life, my heart, my sin, my depravity, my evil wickedness in your pierced hands, believing the promise that you would forgive me and make me a member of your family. My friend, to pray that means that you've just been born again, not of the flesh, the first birth, but of the Spirit, the second birth. And for those of you that believe in Christ, are you willing to accept the slander? Are you willing to be ignored? Are you willing to stand alone? Are you willing to be crushed in some way? Behind it, perhaps, the hand of the enemy who hates you and the church and Christ whom you worship. Will you receive it? Will you accept your poverty and your slander for the name of Christ? Father, may this church join the church worldwide who is willing to accept whatever you allow and permit. And we do it with joy because we know now in the present tense we're rich. We belong to you. All the promises of the future are ours. Give us faithful hearts, Lord, to run the race, to endure whatever suffering comes our way. 
to receive it as from your hand, knowing that one day it will be worth it all. When we see Jesus, life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His dear face, all sorrows will erase. So, Lord, may we bravely run our race till we see Christ. Amen.